0: This message um, has really, really touched me in all honesty. Um, I managed to deliver it this morning without being on the edge of tears as I am now. But I did cry straight after because of the weight of this passage. Imagine if you would the worst evil that you can think of it might be on an individual basis. You might think of murder, you might think of child abuse. You might think of the shooting that happened in the Crimea um, in a college earlier this week, or maybe you think about systemic evil and you think about something like the Holocaust or like all that has been perpetrated by the Islamic State. Evil has something to say in this world, doesn't it? And evil has a lot to say in this passage too. Um, It's because of that that I'm feeling a real weight around that. So ignore the tears. I can preach through that, so you should probably ignore it. But it's just a real sense of weightiness of this message. Now, to make sense of this message, what we actually have to do is to go back as far as um, chapter 10. And I was feeling super chilled relatively, given that I was going to be preaching apocalyptic. I was feeling very chilled about preaching this until I realized about three weeks ago that nobody was preaching after Daniel 9 until this bit here in Daniel 12. And I thought, oh my goodness, in 20 minutes, I've got to actually put the whole vision into context so you know what's going on. So please do have your Bibles because what I'm going to do first is to run you through where we're at. Daniel 10 locates us in the third year of King Cyrus. This is maybe a couple of years after the lion's den incident. Um, Daniel's been fasting, he's been praying, and he's been doing this for three weeks, and an angel shows up. And Daniel 10, I won't go through it in detail, but Daniel 10 is Daniel having an utter meltdown because of the power of this angel and the glory of his coming. And you can read that in chapter 10. If you want a psychological portrait of what's going on for Daniel right now, That will be your passage. But by the time we get to Daniel 11, we now have the words that the angel speaks. And essentially, this is a big prophecy that begins at the beginning of Daniel 11 and runs through into Daniel 12. And in Daniel 11, what the angel says in verse two is that after Cyrus, who's the current king, there will be four more Persian kings, of whom the last is Xerxes. Xerxes is the king who shows up in the book of Esther. And he will be richer than them all. That's what 11.2 says. It says that this king is going to fight against Greece and he's going to lose. And we find out about this king of Greece. Now this text that we have is given to Daniel in the 6th century BC by the angel. But most of it is fulfilled in the 4th century BC through to the 2nd century BC. And that king of Greece against whom Xerxes loses is in fact Alexander the Great. And if you know anything about history, you know how mighty Alexander the Great was. And yet in this passage, in chapter 11, verse 3, he is reduced to one verse. And so the, ch- the chapter goes on and says, there'll be four kingdoms that come out of this Grecian kingdom. it won't be the sons of the king who get authority, it will be others." And that's actually what happens out of Alexander 's kingdom come four subkingdoms, including two of which we now hear about in verses five to 20 of chapter eleven. And in verses five to 20. If you have a skim read, and that's all you've got chance to do now, you'll see all these references to the king of the north and the king of the south and the king of the north and the king of the south, and every now and again, he, 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 and you're like, I don't even know which he that is. But essentially, the king of the north and the king of the south refers to generations of kings of the north and generations of kings of the south. And what happens is that they're fighting one another all of the time. And so the prophecy in 115 to 20 sets us up with these two dynasties that are at war, we see the evil of war for the sake of power. And this text describes invasions, it describes theft of wealth, theft of idols, of the gods of those nations, violence, tens of thousands being killed, the um, royal women being used as pawns in power games, all kinds of stuff is going on. New territories are being subjugated. And finally, in verse 11, uh, chapter 11, 18B, we have Roman intervention. And so what we have in the angels' words here is this incredible prophetic revelation in the sixth century BC of something that actually came to pass in the period of the fourth century BC through to the second century BC. It actually happened, and over this time was a terrible time to be alive. It was a time of great, great evil. And then we get to verses 21 to 35, and we're still not at today's text, but I promise you we're getting there. And verse 21, there's a shift. You can see that it's still talking about kings, but now in verse 21 of chapter 11, it refers to the succession of a contemptible person. This is a king who takes the northern kingdom. The passage tells us that he will not take it as one who takes it by right, but he will take it by force. He will step in to a power vacuum, and that is exactly what happened historically. A king stepped in, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, and he stepped into authority in the northern kingdom. What we have in verses 21 to 35, these 15 verses describe only 12 years. And I want you to understand that because what I want you to see is now in this king, the evil that has been between the north and the south now increases and intensifies significantly. And so we see that he has massive military success. He has rewards that he gives to his supporters. His main enemy is still the southern king, and um, he's still fighting the southern king. The southern kingdom included Egypt. And as it happened historically, by the time that Antiochus went to Egypt for the second time, Rome got involved. Rome rocks up in the passage in verse... 30, where it talks about ships of the western coastlands, or if you've got another translation, it may refer to Kittim. But essentially, that was Roman power. And basically what happens when Antiochus goes into Egypt and Rome gets involved is, it's so it's told historically, is that the Roman general draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes where he's standing and says, you don't step out of that circle until you decide whether or not you're actually invading Egypt. But by the way, if you do invade Egypt, you face Rome. And Antiochus historically tries to get out of it. He's like, let me consult my generals. And and the Roman generals, no way, you decide now. So Antiochus Epiphanes decides he can't take on Rome. He backs off from Egypt and he goes back to his northern kingdom, effectively with his tail between his legs. Except to get back to the northern kingdom, he has to go through the land where the Jewish people are. And the text tells us in verse 30 that he takes his anger out on the people of the Holy Covenant, and that happens around about 167 BC. And what he does to the Jewish people is to declare the death penalty on them. Death penalty if you have the Torah scroll, that was their scriptures. Death penalty, if you circumcise your baby boy, that was a key part of their faith and of their covenant. Death penalty, if you observe the Sabbath. Basically, he made it really, really, really hard to be Jewish and to practice your faith. He worked such great evil in this time, if you see in verses 33, 34, and 35, that many end up giving up their faith. Many end up turning away, stumbling. It's a time of utter desperation. Verse 33, they fall by the sword, they're burned, they're captured, they're plundered. And all that happens in 12 years. Do you notice the intensification of the evil? All the stuff that happened between the north and south before was spread over from the 4th century through to the 2nd century. And suddenly in 12 years, the ante has been upped. And here's the thing when we think evil can't get worse it often does but even this evil in the text is subject to a greater power now i want you to notice in this text we don't see explicit reference to God being in control of all this. We don't see explicit reference to God speaking. Yes, he spoke through the angel back in the 6th century BC to Daniel. But in this period now, when Antiochus Epiphanes is on the throne, we don't get anything of God speaking or anything of God acting. And yet, nevertheless, the text implicitly would have us know that this evil is contained. Time and again in the text, there is reference to the appointed time. And so we see it in verse 24, that this will happen only for a time. We see it in verse 27, the end will be at the appointed time. We see it in verse 29 and 35 as well. Repeatedly, the text declares time limits. And so although we don't have a God who is visibly speaking or visibly acting at this time of great persecution, we do have a sense in which there are time limits and therefore a God who places time limits on evil. Here's the thing. ...that I see, which is that terrifying evil will arise, but it doesn't have the last word. And with that, finally, I can get to the text that I'm actually meant to be preaching today. I'm now at verse 36 of chapter 11, which, if you're in the NIV, has a subject heading just in front of it. Subject headings are not part of the original biblical text. They are put there by the translators. The NIV translators have chosen to put a heading there... Which I think is helpful, but some translators don't. That's important to say because I think there's a real shift here. So far, in the verses immediately preceding, we've been talking about this king, Antiochus Epiphanes. And now in verse 36, it says, The king will do as he pleases. The text doesn't say who the king is. If it's a portion of text that we're meant to understand as continuing from all that came up to verse 35, then it might be Antiochus Epiphanes. And that would be the logical assumption, but I'm not sure it is. And I'm not sure it is because Antiochus Epiphanes historically does not fulfill what's prophesied about him. What it says about this king is that he'll claim to be God, and actually Antiochus didn't claim to be God. That's in verse 36 that he will um, magnify himself above every god. Antiochus also did worship the gods of his ancestors, whereas in 37 it says of this king that he will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors. That if he honors anyone, it will be a god unknown to his ancestors, whereas Antiochus Epiphanes worshipped Zeus and the other Roman gods. So I don't think that this reference in verse 36 to the king is actually a reference to Antiochus Epiphanes. Commentators are divided. The reason I land where I do, that this is not Antiochus Epiphanes, is in part because of what I've just said to you, that he doesn't fulfill this bit of the prophecy And also because the language used here is very similar to language used elsewhere in the scriptures, particularly in 2 Thessalonians 2, where it talks about a man of lawlessness, a coming king or ruler who will do great evil, who is still yet to come, even at this point in 21st century, he is still yet to come. So I suspect because of a canonical reading, that's a reading of the book of Daniel in the sweep of the whole of scripture, I think this is talking about a king who is yet to come. And it shows an evil that is even more terrifying than Antiochus Epiphanes' evil. So if you look with me, in verse 40, it talks about his military power. It says that this king will storm out with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. The NIV there has storm out, but the actual text is closer to uh, being like a whirlwind. This is a storm that cannot be stopped. This is massive, massive military power. It doesn't even need to be directed at you, but it will catch you up in its power. And so, in fact, the text goes on to say that he'll invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. This is like a tsunami, this power. If you've seen pictures of a tsunami, you understand something of the power of this king and his evil rule. 11.41, uh, here it says many countries will fall. He will invade the beautiful land, that's Israel. He and many countries will fall. Some translations have it that tens of thousands will be killed. 11.43, the wealth of the nations will be his because he will have conquered them. 11.44, we see utter destruction that he sets out in a great rage to destroy and not just destroy, but annihilate many. Ever more terrifying evil will arise. Not just in Daniel's day in the 6th century BC, not just in that time of the battle between the kingdoms of the North and the South, the Ptolemy dynasty and the Seleucid dynasty, not just in Antiochus Epiphanes' but I believe also in the end times, in the times which are yet to come for us. And once again, we have God implicitly present in this text, but not obviously so. It could look like we have a God who is silent and inactive in the face of this terror while nations fall, while institutions are overwhelmed By evil, while money is being concentrated in the hands of a few who will not use it for good, while military power increases, ever more terrifying evil will arise. And we go on into chapter 12. And 12 verse 3 says that at this time, the wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. And it's a beautiful verse. Except that it has to be really, really dark to see the stars, doesn't it? Don't see so many stars in London. There's too much light around. Got to go out into the dark countryside to see the stars. Yes, the wise will shine like the brightness of heavens. Those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars, but it's going to be darker than we can imagine. 12 verse 10 says the wicked will continue to be wicked. And 12 verse 7, which I find to be one of the most terrifying verses in this passage, that God's people will experience a breaking of their power. And I, Whatever that means, it seems to me that it is definitely a warning that the church will find herself with almost nothing, that it will be only our faith in Jesus that will hold us, that we will find ourselves, if our power is shattered, we will find ourselves almost obliterated, powerless, with really nothing to speak of other than our faith in a God who, let's be honest, might appear to be silent and might appear to be inactive. And I think as Jesus worshipers, we have to expect that we will be persecuted by this kingdom because we affirm a God who is greater than it. Friends, ever more terrifying evil will arise, and yet, in the darkness, God's people will shine because of our faith in a God who might be silent right now, but will speak, and a God who might appear to be inactive now, but will act. Text tells us again, just like it did in the verses before, 21 to 35, it tells us again now that this is time limited, this suffering, this evil is still time limited verse 7 of chapter 12 says it will happen for time times and half a time and there's a million theories about how long that is because we all want to know but it it doesn't matter it's a finite time we don't know how long but we know it's finite we know that evil doesn't get to have the last word we know also from verse 7 that this shattering of God's people's power that I talked about will also come to an end This evil will not last forever. Best of all, 11 verse 45, it says of this king, yet he will come to his end with none to help him. Ever more terrifying evil will arise, but it doesn't have the last word. God has the last word. And so as I close, what does it mean for us in 21st century Chiswick? Frankly, I think terror is not an inappropriate reaction. I think it's right that we recognize that evil is growing in the earth. And it is growing against God's people, even if actually in nice Chiswick it hasn't really touched us yet. Even if we get to worship freely, we get to pray freely, we get to read the Bible freely, we get to share the gospel freely, evil nevertheless should be expected. As God's people, we must expect that we may have to face persecution for the sake of his name. We may have to face suffering, even to the point of what is an utter shattering of our strength until we have nothing but Jesus that we may have to face that perhaps in the face of a God who seems not to speak and seems not to act friends I know right now I look out on the Chiswick High Road and it seems like I'm imagining for you a world that doesn't exist because right now for us it doesn't but For so many of our brothers and sisters in the world, it does. They are persecuted for the sake of the the name. They do continue in faith in the face of terrifying evil. Trusting that the God who perhaps for them too may seem at times not to speak. And may seem not to act in the way that they hoped to relieve them from their suffering and their persecution. That nevertheless, he is God most high. And just as it says in 12 verse 1, he will deliver them. They know that ever more terrifying evil will arise because they've seen evil and they've seen it get worse. But they know also that evil does not have the last word, that wherever they are in the story right now, it's not the end because God has the last word and he will deliver them. And so I think there's two instructions from the text for us. One comes from that reality that ever more terrifying evil will arise. We need to be real about that. We need to be real about the fact it is happening in certain parts of the world. And we need to be perhaps more serious about praying for our brothers and sisters than we ever have been. We need to, I think, to consider seriously what preparation we need to do now. While worship is free to get involved in, when the word of God is easy to get hold of when there are teachers that we can listen to. We need to think about how am I going to prepare so that in the day of evil, I will stand. How am I going to learn to turn my face again and again towards Jesus so that he is my only hope, so that even if everything else is shattered, I still have him. That's the first thing. The second thing Is that as I said, God does have the last word. And so having done what I've just said, I think then we put our trust in the truth that He does have the last word. The angel says, and I find this fascinating, the angel says in verses nine and thirteen of that last chapter, the end of the whole revelation, the angel says, So you, Daniel, when you've scraped yourself off the floor, no, that was me adding bits to the Bible. When you've scraped yourself off the floor, go your way. Do what you need to do to live a faithful life before the Lord. Don't give way to terror. Don't give way to panic. Do what you have to do to prepare yourself. But then after that, live. Why? Because God does have the last word And so maybe you are here today, and maybe you need to take seriously this freedom that we have to worship, to become serious about worshiping while we're free to worship. Maybe it's about becoming serious about studying the Word of God. Maybe it's about taking the prayer and encouragement of other believers while you can get it, while that's easy to do, while we can meet together. Maybe even right now tonight, you want to receive prayer. Perhaps it's prayer that you would become more serious about the uh, reality of the coming evil. Maybe it's prayer that you would be encouraged and not lose hope, that you would remember that God does have the last word. There's all kinds of ways in which God might lead you to respond, but here's what I want to leave you with before I pray. Ever more terrifying evil will arise. Let's not pretend it won't. But God has the last word and he will save all those who trust in him. So let's pray. Father, forgive us that we have chosen to live as if evil were not a reality, that when it has touched others, we have turned away, that we have lived in a place of denial, thinking that it could never come near us. Forgive us when we have not lived in a way that glorifies you above all else, that declares in our lives that you have the last word. But then, Lord, as we step into the reality, the acceptance that evil is increasing in the earth, would you help us to know in equal measure that you have the last word? That we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to carry the burden of whether or not we'll stand in that day. Because our hope is in Jesus not just the author of our faith, not just the one who's begun it all, but also the perfecter of our faith, the one who will bring it to completion on that final day. Lord, teach us your ways that we might number our days aright. We ask it in your name. Amen.